This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court has ruled that U.S. Bank won't have to face a lawsuit challenging steep losses to its pension plan because the plan participants who filed suit have nothing to gain or lose through the case. It was a 5-4 to four decision along familiar ideological lines. My guest is Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell Law School. Bob, tell us about the issue behind this case. So the issue here was whether a, a couple of pensioners uh, who hold stakes in a particular pension uh, had standing to sue those who were managing the pension for having lost a great deal of money out of the pension, right, through sort of excessively reckless and or insufficiently careful uh, investment activity. And normally, if you were a shareholder uh, in a particular fund, such that your own payout was a function of the value of the fund itself, it would be very clear right, that you'd lost money if the fund lost money and that you had gained money if the fund gained money. But because these are pensioners who have basically fixed income rights in the investment trust, their income is the same, right, no matter what the value of the pension, uh, at least assuming that the pension kind of continues in existence and has not gone bankrupt, right? In, in other words, in, in more or less ordinary times, quite irrespective of the value of the fund, the pensioners have the same rights to the same income because these are essentially debt liabilities that the fund owes to the pensioners right, rather than equity liabilities. So the question really is whether the pensioners have standing to sue uh, in light of some loss of value on the part of the fund because legally speaking, uh, the obligations that are owed to the pensioners are not contingent on the value of the fund, right? Strictly speaking, the fund has to pay the fixed obligation, whether it be worth $5 billion or $100 billion, right? So again, in sort of strictly legal terms, uh, nothing sort of changes for the pensioners just because the pension itself might change in value. But, you know, you, of course, know by now, I mean, the questions are almost never strictly legal or strictly theoretical in cases like this, um, because, of course, we're really dealing with a reality in which risk matters. In other words, a pensioner's uh, likelihood of actually receiving what she is owed is not only a function of the legal obligations of the fund manager, it's also a function of the financial health of the fund. If the fund, in other words, is in the vicinity of insolvency, then the risk that the pensioners don't end up being paid grows appreciably, right, if not indeed enormously in some cases. Uh, And so what that means in turn is that there really is a particular danger to which the pensioners are subject if the fund is mismanaged and if it loses value massively and thus endures a sort of significant rise in the likelihood that it will ultimately fail and go bankrupt and not be able to pay out its liabilities. And how has the Supreme Court been treating this issue of standing in recent years? When it comes to standing, all rides on some very curious developments in the Supreme Court over the last 30 years where standing doctrine is concerned. So by way of very, very brief background, um, the way we tend to operate under Article 3 of our Constitution is essentially to sort of treat our courts as deciders of what we oftentimes call actual cases or controversies, right? In other words, some actual material stake has to be at stake in a lawsuit. We don't typically think of our courts as entities that sort of just declare what the law is just as, as, as if they were professors, right? Um, they don't simply uh, uh, answer theoretical questions or sort of weigh in on theoretical questions. Uh, they decide actual cases and controversies. And so if you, June, had a beef with, uh, with me, uh, Bob, 
um, let's say, with respect to my theory of uh, rel- the theory of relativity. Right? You, you and I have a disagreement over the theory of relativity. Um, you know, this is not an actual case or controversy between us. It's simply a disagreement on the theory of relativity. So you wouldn't really have standing to sue me, and you wouldn't have a cause of action against me uh, either in a case like that. On the other hand, if I do something to sort of deprive you of something to which you're entitled, if I steal from you, for example, if I harm you in any particular way, then, of course, you do have standing to sue. We have an actual material dispute rather than a, say, theoretical dispute. And so the courts are situated to decide it. Now, that's a pretty easy distinction to draw, right? The the somewhat harder part sometimes can be a a circumstance in which the disagreement that we're talking about is definitely over something concrete and real. It's not merely theoretical. However, in some cases, the concrete or real thing might not be an actually occurred uh, harm or actually a current harm but might be a substantial rise in the likelihood of harm, right? In other words, the sort of risk of harm might rise significantly. And so the question then for a court to sort of figure out is, do we think of a risk, right, that sort of increases the likelihood of a physical harm's happening or an actual concrete harm's um, occurring? Should we think of that as a theoretical thing, kind of like the theory of relativity, or should we think of it as itself a real thing, right, that basically, you know, risk is a real thing, it's not just theoretical. And, you know, historically, we've tended to answer that question in the affirmative, that basically the risk is a real thing. And so if I do something that subjects you to significant risk or that actually, you know, lowers the expected value of some asset that you hold, like a pension benefit, that's a concrete harm as far as the law is concerned. And that's the way it has typically been in our legal history. Starting in the 1980s and proceeding on to the 1990s, right down to the present, the Supreme Court seems to have been really kind of keen on limiting people's access to the courts. And one way of doing that, of course, is to shrink the number of things that count as concrete or actual non-theoretical harms. The more uh, such things they can remove from the class of actual concrete harms, the harder it gets for you or me to get into court, because the harder it gets for you or me to establish that we have standing, that we actually have an actual case or controversy that is sort of uh, amenable to judicial decision or or adjudication. So in a sense, you can view this particular case, this particular decision by the Supreme Court, as simply the latest in this rather distressing, from my point of view, long line of decisions that have sort of progressively narrowed the doorway for you and I to get access to justice in the courts, basically by defining, in a sense, out of existence, certain harms that previously would have been treated as actual harms and would have been defined as harms and thus would have qualified us to get into court with standing to sue. So in this particular case, it's quite transparent in Kavanaugh's rather surprisingly schoolboyish opinion for the majority. Tell us more about Kavanaugh's opinion for the conservative majority in the case. Because, you know, look, uh, this is a fixed liability on the part of the pension um, that's owed to these pensioners. Um, That means uh, that, at least legally speaking, uh, they basically enjoy the same benefit through the pension if they win this suit as if they lose this suit, right? The outcome of the suit, in other words, doesn't change the liability that the pension fund owes to the pensioners. Therefore, it makes no difference whether they're in the suit or not, and therefore they don't have standing, right? But again, the problem with that line of reasoning is it completely ignores the fact that there are two determinants of harm here, right? One is the legal obligation 
of the pension fund, which is admittedly invariant um, as between the circumstance in which the plaintiffs win and the circumstances in which they lose. But the other determinant, again, is the actual likelihood of being paid, right? The, uh, the actual risk of the funds turning out not to be able to pay what it owes and thus you know, going bankrupt. And that's just completely ignored. It's treated as though it were just a non-existent issue. Or it's, it's almost as though there were sort of a blind spot where the color orange and Justice Kavanaugh was wearing orange glasses, and so he just couldn't see it. It's just sort of not there as far as he is concerned. And in that sense, it, this is a sort of garden variety, you know, once again narrowing the doorway standing uh, determination uh, by the Supreme Court. So, you know, if you, I, I think what this means really is there are sort of two reasons, two bases on which to be sort of really disturbed about this decision. The first is what I just mentioned, that it is just yet another one of these cases that sort of narrows the doorway, makes it less and less possible for you or me uh, to get redress in the courts of law, which are there to provide us with redress. And secondly, um, it sort of carries on uh, with this tendency among some judges to treat risk as though it were something that's not real, as though it were as theoretical as the theory of quantum mechanics or something, so that disputes over risk are no different than disputes in Parisian cafes over you know, the, the truth or falsehood of the theory of quantum mechanics or the theory of relativity or what have you. And risk is not like that, right? The only proof you need of that is just to look at our financial markets, right? I mean, basically every price uh, associated with every asset in any financial market is itself partly a function of the risk that attaches to that asset. In other words, we deal not in value, but in expected value when we're talking about financial assets. And that means we're treating risk as something real. We're treating risk, in other words, as something with a dollar value, right? A, a riskier asset is something that all else being equal, you pay less for. And a less risky asset, uh, all else being equal, you pay more for, right? It's dollar valued. What could be more concrete or real than that uh, in a modern economy? Um, and so when Justice Kavanaugh sort of pretends like, well, the only things that are concrete are just really primitive things like, you know, clubs and baseball bats and fists in your nose and stuff. But, but you know, risk is just not real. I mean, it's, 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 first of all, again, very primitive. It's a very sort of pre-modern way of thinking of the world or thinking of things. But it's also completely obtuse uh, to pretty much everything that gets done in our economy, pretty much every decision that's made in our economy, because every decision made in our economy is at least partly made on the basis of perceived uh, or even measurable uh, risk. You look at this and you say, well, it's just an issue of standing. Why is it a five to four split along ideological lines? Give us another explanation of why this split the justices along ideological lines. Sure. Yeah. So um, the reason that this tends to, that the standing question uh, tends to divide the court along ideological lines and hence sort of invites the 5-4 type decisions that we see so much of these days is precisely the fact that it's primarily uh, political and judicial conservatives who have been sort of who have been the primary drivers, you might say, of this long term trend over the last 30 years or so within the Supreme Court to narrow the gates through which people can get um, in order to get access to justice. In other words, uh, conservatives for the last 30 years or so seem to be really reluctant to let people have access to the courts. Um, and so, you know, the whole history of the conservative legal movement um, over the last 30 years or so is in a sense a, a sort of history of systematic uh, diminishment of the grounds on the basis of which you can get justice in a court of law. 
And if you think about it, this kind of hangs together rather nicely, right, with the, the sense of the way in which conservatives and political campaigns and in their rhetoric in, in, in Congress and in legislatures and so forth are always demonizing the quote unquote, the trial lawyers. You know, they're always upset about lawyers. They, they seem to, and they're always, you know, on about unelected judges and, you know, there's a, a tendency for them to demonize the courts and, 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 the, and the legal process and the law itself. There's this kind of inherent suspicion that they seem to have. Um, and so I think, you know, if, if you look at the, the way they've um, sort of changed standing doctrine over the years, if you also look at the doctrine uh, surrounding um, the circumstance, the, the, determining the circumstances under which there are private rights of action that individuals can bring into court, you know, as distinguished from regulators uh, sort of uh, initiating process uh, in the court about. Um, if you look at, um, you know, the, 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 the grounds on which uh, people even are deemed as having causes of action under particular bodies of law, be it regulatory law or other, the trend is pretty much the same in all of those different realms um, when it comes to conservative judges or lawyers or legislators on the one hand and non-conservative uh, judges or, or lawyers or, 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 or politicians on, on the other hand. In general, those who are not conservative uh, seem to be more friendly to the idea of giving people access to justice, making sure that people have access to the courts, making sure that people can vindicate their rights and enforce their rights in courts of law. That's what the courts are for, after all. And then it seems that what the conservatives are sort of all about is sort of progressively taking all of that stuff away, sort of diminishing it. So let me ask you this. The the circuit courts were split before this Mm -hmm. decision. Does this mean Mm -hmm. that those courts will now have to follow this decision? Yeah, the the short answer is yes. um, And the slightly longer answer is that mainly yes. (laughs) So so to to explain, I mean, the the reason that the short answer is yes is that, yeah, that's, that's typical ground on which the Supreme Court decides to hear a case, right? It has discretion to not to hear cases or to go ahead and hear them. And, and one of the principal reasons or bases on which the Supreme Court will go ahead um, and grant a so-called writ of certiorari uh, and thus hear a case and decide it is the so-called circuit split, right? If there's a significant split between circuits in the country, then to sort of resolve the ambiguity, the Supreme Court will take the case and sort of, you know, weigh in and, and settle it once and for all. And that's the way it's supposed to work. That's theory. And in general, that's the reality as well. The one sense in which you might hedge this, and hence the, the slightly longer answer, um, is that, you know, if this decision is as controversial as it seems to me it ought to be, um, and hence remains a, a kind of contested territory for a while, then circuits uh, that are that do not find this opinion persuasive or you know congenial or consistent with principles of justice will look for grounds on which to quote unquote distinguish this decision from later cases that might come up, right? In other words, other cases might come up that are similar to this one in some respects while also differing from it in other respects. And if it's plausible to sort of single out the differing respects in any particular case as legally relevant or salient, then you might, as a circuit court, come come down in a way that's not, in a sense, consistent with this Supreme Court decision, but but on the other hand, kind of is, right? Um, because you, you can sort of say, well, look, if this particular case before us were identical in every relevant respect to the case that was before the Supreme Court in this decision, 
then yes, we would be bound by that Supreme Court decision. But again, if this case before us differs in some legally relevant respect or seemingly salient or important respect from the case that was before the Supreme Court, then we can plausibly argue that that Supreme Court decision doesn't actually apply here. It's about a different sort of issue than this issue. Um, and therefore, uh, we can come down uh, differently, even if it superficially looks like it is a decision that is in tension with that Supreme Court decision. And whether that happens is pretty much just a matter of, you know, just sort of what happens out there in the world, the sort of function of what sorts of disputes or cases or controversies arise, if anybody you know, brings them to court, and then whether they get past the district court up to the circuit court in the, uh, in the territory in question. Thanks, Bob. That's Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell Law School. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show weeknights at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.